0: About 47% of the people believe today that judiciary is strongly affected by corruption.
1: Welcome to Kickback, the global anti corruption podcast. You just heard the voice of Andres Hernandez, he's the executive director of the Colombia chapter of Transparency International. And last December, he sat down with Matthew in Bogota to talk extensively about corruption in Colombia. Before we dive into the interview, let me just give you a quick outline of what you can expect in the next 50 minutes or so. In the first part, they talk about corruption in the judiciary. The conversation then shifts to a corruption referendum that was held in Colombia in 2018. And in my favorite part of the interview, Andres and Matthew discuss the potential pitfalls of public outcry against corruption and whether Colombia is in danger of following the same path as Brazil or Guatemala. Last but not least, Andres reflects on the last two decades of anti-corruption work in Colombia. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did when I listened to it for the first time. So without further ado, have fun with this episode.
2: Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. Today I'm in Bogota, Colombia, and I'm delighted to be joined by Andres Hernandez. Andres, thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much, Matthew. This is a very interesting opportunity to share some thoughts and ideas about uh, what's
2: going on in Colombia, and uh, it's great to be part of this podcast. Well, thank you very much. A lot is going on in Colombia right now, and I want to get to that in just a moment. But to begin with, maybe you could tell me and our listeners a little bit about your own background. What was it that led you to anti-corruption and working for Transparency International?
0: Well, since I was in university, corruption became an issue of interest. At that time, we had a huge scandal because of drug trafficking, financing, the presidential campaign of, uh, at that moment, President Ernesto Samper. And that created a big wave of frustration in Colombia. Being a young student, I was very much touched by the uh, risks and dangers that this situation posed into democratic institutions in Colombia. And uh, it was a moment in which um, we in Colombia uh, started realizing how bad uh, drug trafficking has uh, affected uh, since many years ago, not only uh, our social spheres, but also our uh, institution, politics and and economy. So it it became kind of a a turning point for anti-corruption in Colombia, And, and since then I've been very much interested in researching, understanding, uh, looking after anti-corruption tools to actually protect what uh, I believe it's a, a very important asset, which is democratic institutions.
2: So you reference anti-corruption tools. Can you say a little bit more about the tools that exist to fight corruption in Colombia currently, but maybe also a bit about what you and your colleagues at TI Colombia are doing to try to strengthen those tools or to add new tools to the toolkit?
0: TI Colombia was founded actually right after this um, uh, situation that I just shared, this uh, presidential period of Ernesto Samper, because there were quite a few people wanting to promote preventive strategies. Putting people in jail has been a common issue in Colombia, but that doesn't change actually or um, means to do things which sometimes reach out to corruption um, mechanisms, but uh, mostly to, as I mentioned before, strengthen our institutions and the shared responsibility that, for example, private sector and citizens have in fighting corruption. So for 20 years uh, or a bit more, TI Colombia has been uh, looking at which are the main corruption risks that affect uh, our public entities or private uh, companies, also the corruption risks that are uh, involved in civil society work. And we have developed um, tools and methodologies to address those corruption risks. So, for example, with public entities, we've been doing a lot of work about how to enhance um, public contracting practices, We've been working a lot, for example, advocating for stronger policies related to uh, employment in the public sector. And uh, since a few years ago, we've been putting a lot of pressure on increasing access to information, to public information, as a tool that helps changing the game between citizens and and public entities. We've been doing similar things with, with private sector. We worked for many years with uh, large companies uh, and um, having them incorporating more tools for their, uh, for example, uh, value chains and how to increase awareness about corruption and and introducing uh, tools to to tackle bribery, to tackle conflict of interest, etc. So those are the kind of of, uh, means that we have uh, identified in, in, in Colombia that help us address corruption risk. And and this, uh, as I mentioned before, has been uh, very interesting, very challenging, of course. And uh, we've been trying to widen that um, uh, spectrum. For example, since many years ago, we've been also working on uh, political financing. We've been working as well recently on the, um, the judiciary, how to identify and address corruption risks, for example, in high courts. And uh, that's the kind of of job, I mean, we want to reach to concrete tools and concrete answers.
2: You mentioned corruption in the judiciary, and that um, leads me to want to ask a little bit about, I gather there was a significant scandal, a corruption scandal, in the Colombian judiciary within the last few years um, involving at least two judges on the Supreme Court. Can you say a little bit more about that? I think not all of our listeners will be familiar with what exactly happened.
0: In Colombia, we have a tradition of actually trusting the judiciary and somehow when people ask for results uh, in terms of anti-corruption, again, they want to see uh, judges making decisions, strong decisions against people involved in, in anti-corruption. But uh, since a few years ago, we are starting identifying several witnesses in the judiciary system and unfortunately, some years ago, high level scandals uh, appear involving um, high court judges, but also attorneys. And this has been very problematic because the credibility of these institutions, we are, which are key for anti-corruption, has uh, been reduced. Uh, the judiciary is one of the most affected uh, entities. According to the Transparency International Global Corruption Barometer that uh, was released a few months ago, about 47% of the people believe today that judiciary is strongly affected by corruption, which is a quite bad um, situation. But this relates to the scandal that you were referring to and in which uh, high-level politicians were asking favours from judges and these judges were also open to favor uh, politicians uh, under severe investigations. And uh, what we realized is that there was a network of uh, high profile people involving a lot of money to misconduct investigations in favor of those uh, politicians. And again, that has brought a lot of uh, lack of credibility in the judiciary. We believe uh, nonetheless that uh, the judiciary has a strong role to play in anti-corruption. And we've been working with different entities from the judiciary in Colombia, uh, helping them opening such an important branch to um, a stronger accountability.
2: Do you think that the tools and institutions that Colombia currently has to deal with corruption in the judiciary, and as you just put it, to ensure judicial accountability are adequate? Or do you think that there need there's a need for substantial reform in the way that Colombia deals with judicial accountability generally and the problem of judicial corruption more specifically?
0: This is a very controversial issue in Colombia because most of the people, even the judiciary, believe we need a strong reform of the judiciary. But when it comes to actually moving forward that reform in Congress, very few things happen, uh, not to say that nothing happens. So there is a big room for things to be done uh, in terms of uh, strengthening, for example, the, the the career in the judiciary to ensure that they have uh, a stronger controls over conflict of interest on the decisions and the cases that they're... Uh, investigating, there's a lot of uh, need, for example, for a stronger technical capacity on the attorney's office, which uh, prevents, for example, uh, corrupt interest uh, getting some sort of influence into the investigations. And there's as well a lot of room for further accountability and access to information uh, towards citizens one of the big problems that we have in Colombia, as in many other places, but but here in Colombia, we have high level of impunity when it comes to corruption. And um, when you actually report formally a case, uh, it is very difficult to follow up. We've been uh, doing some research in Transparencia por Colombia that says that a criminal investigation uh, related to corruption in Colombia takes at least uh, four years to to be solved. This was uh, even worse a few years ago. It took about uh, eight years. I mean, it has improved somehow, but still there's a lot of time that that is required to actually uh, have the judiciary uh, producing results. This, of course, uh, should not be uh, confused with the need to respect the due process Uh, but we do believe that further transparency and accountability mechanisms and tools into the judiciary could benefit the anti-corruption agenda in Colombia.
2: So, one of the challenges of ensuring appropriate degrees of judicial accountability and integrity is there's also the concern, not only as you just said, to ensure due process, but also to preserve judicial independence. And some people sometimes express the concern that the mechanisms or tools we might put in place to promote judicial accountability, in particular, disciplining judges who engage in misconduct might pose a threat to judicial independence. Do you see that as a concern in the Colombian context? How does one manage the challenge of dealing with the very serious problem of judicial corruption without threatening the similarly important value of judicial independence?
0: That is indeed an issue in Colombia. What I believe is that independence and autonomy is confused with opacity. And that's the dilemma we need to solve. I believe that uh, a stronger and in the more independent judiciary is a judiciary that is able to have a strong technical capacity, that is able to regulate and control conflict of interest, and that it's able to openly show to the citizens uh, the results of, uh, of its work. And I don't believe that uh, should be confused with uh, uh, a threat to, to independence uh, of the branch. I do believe that, um, uh, for example, part of the reform that we need in Colombia is actually to uh, increasing independence of how for example the judiciary gets involved into appointing other high level positions at the state level so if we are able to remove those kind of functions from the judiciary there will be less room for patronage schemes that have been set up around this kind of uh, appointment processes Uh, so again my point is Uh, independence should not be confused with opacity and uh, a stronger and autonomous judiciary is a transparent uh, judiciary.
2: So before we leave the topic of the judiciary and judicial corruption, I wanted to pick up on something that you uh, just said about the role of the judiciary in the appointments process. Mm. My understanding is that in Colombia, the judiciary plays a greater role in the appointment of other officers. Uh, outside of the judicial branch itself, that is non-judge officers, than is true in many other countries. And there are many countries in which judges are directly involved in the appointment of other judges. But my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is that in Colombia, the judges also play a significant role in the appointment of other officers with other kinds of law enforcement functions. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because I I'm not sure I understand the details, and I imagine many of our listeners also won't be familiar with this aspect of the Colombian system.
0: Well, the basic idea is the one that you just explained, that in our system, in Colombia, when we created the 1991 Constitution, it was the idea that the judiciary was respected, independent, strong branch. So that was the best uh, place to put decisions on uh, appointments of other high level uh, positions of the state. The problem is that rather quick political interest started to interfere with that great branch that we had. And that's, many people say, when problems started. So. We didn't have the judiciary benefiting uh, the appointment of other high-level positions, but rather politics around those appointments affecting the the judiciary. And um, that opened the room for a more politicized, let's say, and and that's why I insist a lot on on the conflict of interest, a more conflicted, let's say, uh, judiciary that is not necessarily doing its job around um, judging cases, but rather thinking of how I'm going to move my uh, cards uh, around appointment of other people in in other entities. And we have a quite uh, dramatic but representative uh, scandal a few years ago of a high level state uh, position, the person that was um, in that position appointing relatives of high level uh, courts, uh, judges into its institution. So that person could later on be reelected by the high court uh, for a new term. Uh, and that tells a lot about uh, this phrase that we have uh, in Colombia. That it says, yo te elijo, tu me eliges, which means I appoint you and then you appoint me. And at the end, that's, uh, to put it in simple words, uh, the problem of uh, appointment functions that we have in our judiciary.
2: Fascinating. So, um, if you don't mind that, we could talk for the rest of our time just about that because it's so interesting. But I wanted to ask you about another interesting development in the struggle against corruption in Colombia that took place I think a little bit over a year ago and that's the national referendum so One of the biggest challenges as you and many of our listeners well know in trying to fight corruption is that very often it's difficult to get significant reform through the legislature the Parliament or the executive branch especially if it threatens their interests and I gather that one thing that that anti-corruption activists and some politicians in colombia tried to do to get around that problem was to go directly to the people in the form of a national referendum that proposed i think it was seven measures against corruption and though the referendum didn't ultimately meet the very high vote threshold that was necessary to automatically become law it did get a substantial majority of the votes cast in favor of these seven points So. Can you talk a little bit about that process i know a very little bit about it basically everything i just said is everything i know about it can you say a little bit more about how this came to be and what your perspective as an anti-corruption activist and as the executive director of one of the leading anti-corruption voices in Colombia thought about this strategy both the strategy for for getting anti-corruption reform through and maybe a little bit about the substance of the seven proposals that uh, were, were the things that the citizens were voting on in the referendum?
0: One of the risks and opportunities that uh, working with anti-corruption issues poses is that anti-corruption can be easily taken as a political flag, as a political tool. And that has happened in many cases in Colombia and many other countries. In this particular situation, what happened is that one of the most recent political parties in Colombia, the Green Party, uh, which uh, has been competing for political power, of course, some of their leaders identify several obstacles into actually, as you mentioned, bringing changes through the regular legislative uh, means. So they decided to go out and get the support from, from citizens using one tool that we have in our constitution, which is the Consulta Popular, which is more easily understood in English as a referendum, but it's not, it's not technically the same. But, but the purpose was that, actually to in for the mandate from, from people to push forward uh, these, these reforms. So it started as an as a initiative of a political party Uh, It grew very rapidly. It required uh, a bit more of a million uh, firms from citizens supporting uh, the call for the referendum. Uh, It reached a high level. It reached uh, 4.5 million people signing for the referendum. And once this was approved by the electoral authority, then the Senate approved the, the referendum itself. So that was part of the political process that it has. Right after it went out of the Senate, many organizations, including us, Transparencia por Colombia, decided that it was a historic moment for anti-corruption in Colombia because we had the chance of actually calling on people to reject corruption through a massive action, which was actually going out and voting in favor of these reforms. We... We're not that very much interested in the changes that the seven points of the reforms would bring because we believe the seven points uh, are um, uh, relevant for anti-corruption work. But as we used to say, there is not a magic bullet for for anti-corruption, to solve corruption. So, I mean, we went out saying, yes, it is important that we discuss these seven points. But what is most important is that Colombian society mobilizes to reject corruption. And to be honest, uh, we did a lot of um, promotion of the referendum. We discussed with the different colleagues on the points that the, the referendum um, included. A lot of people didn't like the points, but like the referendum, we, we took the decision of actually putting more attention into um, citizen mobilization. and. Um, it turned out uh, that, uh, well, more than 11 million people went out uh, uh, voting uh, in our point of view to reject corruption. If you see the results of each of the seven points that were voted, pretty sure I won't make the mistake, but uh, most of them were approved uh, over a 95% rate of, of the people. So. It's not that people actually choose one or the other. I mean, people went out to vote and reject corruption to a symbolic and uh, um, formal mechanism that we have in Colombia, which which is this referendum. So unfortunately, most of the laws that were expected to be uh, moved forward in Congress after the referendum, that even though was not uh, uh, legally binding, we said that it was... Politically binding because I mean, the referendum had more votes than the presidential election. So, um, we were hoping that Congress would uh, promote these laws. Unfortunately, very few of them have been approved. Some of them have been dismissed from the uh, congressional agenda. And today, I believe what's happening is that people in the streets are actually uh, demanding uh, the president of not complying with the commitment of uh, moving forward the results of the anti-corruption referendum and actually uh, not supporting enough the delivery over the new laws that uh, people were expecting.
2: So, I want to pick one, an interesting aspect of what you said, which is that you and other people, not only in Transparency International Columbia, but other advocacy ag- groups as well, were very supportive of the referendum. Despite not being necessarily enthusiastic about the specific items of the referendum, the seven points. And I want to press you a little bit about that because I suppose a, a skeptic might say if you put to the people a referendum that says we should fight corruption, overwhelming majorities will agree, yes, we should fight corruption. And you could say we should fight corruption by doing whatever and you'll get overwhelmed majorities of people agreeing with that. It's not necessarily a signal, the skeptic might continue, that people actually are strongly supportive of that particular proposal, or even that that particular proposal is a a good idea. So, on this topic, Uh, A contributor to the the Global Anti-Corruption Blog, which I also uh, run, who who wrote about this around the time it was happening, pointed out that some of the measures, things like cutting legislative salaries and imposing term limits on legislators, seemed more uh, about expressing anger at the corruption that was perceived to exist in the government, but actually those measures, if adopted, might even make the problem worse. So can you tell me uh, how—you might disagree with that uh, analysis, and you should feel free to if you want, but, but can you talk me through a little bit how you think about the strategy of putting forward and supporting a referendum where maybe you don't actually agree with all of the specific items being proposed, and maybe there's reason to question whether the citizens themselves even understand what it is they're voting on. What you actually get is an indication that 11 or 12 million Colombians don't like corruption, but we probably knew that already. So what was the, what was the value or the benefit of doing this through the, I know referendum is not the right, exactly the right translation, but I'll continue to use that um, term. So can you talk a little bit about that, that concern? Sure, of course, because
0: that was a very discussed uh, issue, both in our organization, but in many other organizations. If you look at the seven points, as I mentioned before, it's not that we were extremely excited about them because they would be the silver bullet to end corruption. If it would have been up to us, maybe we would have suggested some other issues, but um, most of them are related to high corruption risk areas that we've identified in in Transparencia for Colombia for many years, and um, let me give a, a few examples. One of them, for example, is related to regulating conflict of interest of Congress people and uh, also local level collegiate bodies we believe this is a strong issue in Colombia we have a very weak conflict of interest regulation and if you are familiar with uh, uh, well any congress that it's in charge of actually dealing with interest of a whole society when that discussion is not being done on a transparent way uh, there is huge room for, for corruption. So uh, I think on that point, for example, there's still need for improvement uh, in Colombia. We have, uh, for example, another of the proposal is related to how to improve uh, public contracting by having more clear, clear standards on uh, the terms of reference uh, for public bids. Uh, which is a huge problem again in Colombia because we have a lot of public contracting processes made to the characteristics of uh, the provider this is like tailor-made for the provider so and most of the time these these providers are also financing uh, political campaigns so as uh, we leave room for a public official to decide over the terms of reference of public of, of bid without a strong standard or what is written in, that, uh, in those terms of reference. I mean, that, that's a huge area for, for corruption risk. So again, not, not to go into the seven points, but we do believe there were important issues involved there. Perhaps one of the most controversial was the one on reducing the salaries of, of, of Congress uh, people, I think that there, there's uh, a lot of um, reasons why not uh, reading that type of measure as an anti-corruption measure, and actually maybe one that could increase corruption uh, risks. But but again, if you look at the others, uh, I mean, still there are, uh, from my point of view, there are there are relevant. You mentioned something that it's uh, that, that we also identified at that moment, and is how complex these issues are and how they were written in the referendum uh, was not that clear it was not easy to understand so a lot of messages and a lot of work had to be done in terms of uh, having people understanding what each of the points meant Uh, but at the end and, and I end with this point for me actually knowing that 12, almost 12, 12 million people are um, willing to go out on a Sunday morning without any political party supporting or asking them to come to the to, to vote and uh, actually not expecting anything in change of their vote. I mean, that that's pretty strong in terms of uh, actually having. A, a concrete number on, on how large is uh, the Colombian population uh, rejecting corruption uh, with that very uh, simple and specific action. As I said before, I think today we are seeing the consequences of not actually delivering of, uh, on the promises uh, after the referendum and not having those laws approved. It's not that the Protests that we have in Colombia today are only about anti-corruption. There are many about there are about many other issues, but uh, in terms of anti- of anti-corruption, uh, a lot of people are frustrated because uh, nothing uh, happened after the, the referendum.
2: So great. I want to pick up on what you just said to clarify for our listeners because our podcasts are published usually a few weeks after they're recorded. We're recording this on uh, uh, December fourth in Bogota, where there are massive. Uh, protests and strikes both in uh, Bogota but also throughout Colombia that involve a great many issues. Certainly not, no one would characterize them as anti-corruption protests specifically. There's a whole range of issues from the peace process, pensions, uh, minimum wage issues, and so forth. But as you say, it seems like there's at least some public frustration that may be feeding into the protests that, that concerns the government's failure to act on what looked like as you put it before, a a politically binding Mm. uh, mandate, even if not legally binding, to to act on this, this popular dissatisfaction with the corruption situation. And that leads very directly into the next thing that I want to ask you about, which is that looked at one way, this degree of citizen anger over corruption, desire to do something about it, is a good thing. All too often in countries where corruption is widespread, people are complacent or cynical or simply accept corruption as the way things have to be. And we see in Colombia and elsewhere, real groundswell of of citizen movements opposed to corruption. But uh, there's a concern about this based on things that have happened elsewhere in this region of the world in particular. So if you look at Brazil to your south or Guatemala to your north, we see maybe two examples of places where we had anti-corruption uh, efforts that were in some ways quite successful at exposing very high level corruption in the system and we saw a popular outpouring of anger and frustration over the lack of action against corruption. In Brazil even you know, before we got all, all the convictions associated with the car wash investigation right after the Olympics or during the Olympics and the World Cup there were major street protests In Guatemala people were talking about a so-called Guatemalan spring where people were out in the streets uh, protesting the corruption that the sisig institution had uncovered at the highest levels of the Guatemalan government but of course the aftermath of these uh, anti-corruption upswells was not entirely positive from the perspective of building and strengthening uh, democratic institutions and the rule of law in Brazil anger over corruption helps propel President Bolsonaro into his position. and Of course, he, among other things that he's done, has weakened, in many ways, Brazil's anti-corruption institutions. And then in Guatemala, President Morales, who campaigns with the slogan, not corrupt, not a crook when in office not only are he and people close to him potentially implicated in serious corruption of their own but he shut down cc which had been in many ways responsible for exposing that corruption so this is a very long wind up to the question but you see where i'm going with this in colombia right now do you have similar kinds of concerns that the popular frustration over corruption might create opportunities for demagogues, to maybe not put too fine a point on it, or other political leaders or movements that maybe don't have much patience with institutions or the rule of law, to capitalize on that citizen frustration in ways that might not be good for the country in general or the anti-corruption struggle in particular.
0: Yes, I do have that concern. I do believe that what we are seeing in Colombia may create a scenario in which non-democratic leadership could uh, gain more power. I don't know if so much up to become the president, but uh, it it could uh, become a stronger political feeling that uh, in order to combat and attack corruption, we need to get rid of some key democratic institutions. One of the things that made me have that concern is that if you see a few weeks ago, we had a protest in one public university by students because it was a corruption. scandal was discovered involving the authorities of this public university and uh, It actually triggered uh, a student's frustration and they went out to the streets and we could draw a line between what happened in that day and what is happening now that you just explained very well. If there is nothing that comes to feel that frustration, the anti-corruption task may be incomplete. I do believe that it's very important that people reject corruption, go out to the street to protest uh, against corruption. But it's as important that we have a strong work on strengthening institutions. Otherwise, what we will have is a huge wave of frustration that is not being empty by institutionality, but rather by populism. I don't think Colombia is as dramatic as maybe other cases in the region, but the concern is there. What I do believe we need to do now is try to increase awareness about the importance of taking care on what is public, what, what, what's the concept of public in Colombia, of, of those goods that we share as a society and that we as a society need to be more aware of. And one of those goods is our public and democratic institutionality. And again, if we have a lot of frustration, but we don't fill that gap with enough sense of the need of democratic institutions, the risk of a populist taking advantage of that um, context is, is high. This is the context in which, for example, strong leadership from democratic institutions, such as the president, such as uh, leaders in Congress, such as leaders in the judiciary, need to prove to the people that it's true democratic institutions and not true populist solutions that we could tackle corruption. Otherwise, we could have a very complex and serious situation uh, in the years ahead.
2: So I wanted to ask about one more topic that also relates to the concern about impunity and the frustration with the inability or what sometimes seems to be the inability of domestic institutions of justice, prosecutors, courts, and so forth to to address high-level corruption. And that's a proposal that uh, many civil society advocates have been raising the last few years to create an international court, an international anti-corruption court modeled on but distinct from the International Criminal Court and to give it jurisdiction on the basis of the principle of complementarity over a a subset of grand corruption offenses. Um, This is a topic that's prompted some debate. I've written about it in my blog so I'm not going to inject my own personal views to this conversation but it's certainly a, a topic that's worth discussing. The reason I wanted to ask you specifically about this topic is that while the Uh, campaign, the push for an international anti-corruption court had originated principally in civil society groups, two countries in particular, Colombia and Peru, maybe there are others now as well, but I'm aware of those two countries, and really it's Colombia that's the driving force here, has come out very much in favor of the creation of an international anti-corruption court. The Colombian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has issued statements to this effect and and declared that Colombia would be uh, advocating for the creation of this body in forums like, for example, the Conference of State Parties for the UN UN Convention Against Corruption and so forth. I'd be interested in your perspective as a Colombian anti-corruption advocate and activist on both the proposal generally and also your perspective on the Colombian government's apparently enthusiastic endorsement of of this proposal on the international stage.
0: Well, about the proposal itself of, of the international court, my sense is that there are two reasons why it's not such a good idea one is more on the let's say area of anti-corruption tools and strategies and the other is in the area of let's say more uh, a pragmatic approach about the first one about the anti-corruption tools strategies my sense is that Bringing the discussion into such a huge international initiative puts attention into the punitive and the sanction side of anti-corruption and it reduces attention on something that most of the people in the anti-corruption field would agree with is the need for stronger and more efficient preventive tools. the risk of this is that we would put all or most of our hopes into actually having people sanctioned. And what we are seeing today is that even though if we have sanctions, sanctions do not conduct to deep transformations of the conditions that actually allowed corruption to appear. Uh, so, my sense is that it could be, uh, it could distract attention on the structural changes that we actually need to put in progress in a country such as Colombia. And, and, and again, the risk of actually delivering results from such an international court would take a lot of time and, and effort and not allow us to have an, enough attention, as I mentioned before, on the, on the key structural changes that we need at least at domestic level. But my other point is, as I just mentioned, is is a more pragmatic way uh, or pragmatic arguments, let's say. I would say that the time, the resources, and the efforts to have an international court are so huge and so big that um, it would uh, not be feasible to actually have such an international body and actually meeting the expectations that, of course, we all have about stronger sanctions against uh, corrupt people. I I prefer much more that we continue focusing the limited resources, time, uh, and technical capacities that we have into a stronger international cooperation, into a stronger accountability of the judiciary at national level, and into stronger international commitments around the vehicles and the facilitators of transnational crime, such as uh, offshore companies, uh, such as the big uh, transnational crime networks uh, that are established and take advantage of weaknesses within the systems of of different countries. I I believe we need to focus much more in those drivers, those facilitators than in putting again a lot of time, attention and resources into a new international body. I always think about how much it costs to reach the United Nations Convention Against Corruption. I remember being a young student and trying to participate and follow up on the uh, discussions about uh, that convention that took a long while to be discussed, to be negotiated. And at the end, I do believe we have a good international uh, tool um, in UNCAC. But um, at this point of, of things, bringing that international discussion from this pragmatic point of view, as I mentioned, uh, would take a lot of time and resources that we should uh, put into other areas for uh, anti-corruption strategies.
2: I can easily imagine some Colombians being a little bit cynical about a Colombian government that hasn't even been able to pass a new law on transparency in public procurement, despite 11 million Colombians saying they want that, claiming that we need a bold, dramatic uh, transformation at the international level. Do, do people? Am I wrong that people might have a little bit of that? cynicism here that you're saying in international forums, you want to create a bold new international institution but domestically at home you can't even pass some pretty straightforward basic conflict of interest laws
0: that is one problem that there's one problem that I just mentioned uh, when you ask about the the referendum is that uh, anti-corruption could be easily used for political purposes and I think that um, having a leadership at the international scenario with such innovative and uh, very ambitious idea of having an international court, well, of course, calls a lot of attention into the the countries that promote the the idea. And I believe that uh, the the Colombian government, by pushing this idea forward, is also trying to get a stronger uh, role at the international scenario. And I, I think it's, I think that's valid. I think countries should always look for innovative approaches to have uh, an active uh, role at the international scenarios. But what you just mentioned, it, it's its a fact. I mean, if you are actually an anti-corruption champion that has managed to address corruption in a very efficient way and have uh, Great strategy at at national level, and your international cooperation around uh, anti corruption works extremely well. I think that puts you in a position of uh, getting a stronger role in the international scenario into the anti corruption debate. I don't think that's necessarily the case of our current government or previous governments that we've had in Colombia. I don't want to say it's a problem of this government. I I don't think that recent governments in Colombia have had a great uh, performance in terms of of anti-corruption. Of course, there are very positive things that we've had in Colombia in in recent years and recently as well. But, uh, But there is a gap between what's going on at national level and that kind of leadership that the current Colombian government wants to have at the international scenario with uh, this proposal of the international court. So um, it is indeed a matter of a stronger coherence between what's going at the national level and what you are trying to promote at the international level. Right.
2: So you've Thanks. been so generous with your time. I'm, I'm reluctant to impose on you more, but before we close, I want to ask you one final question. And, and that's to take a step back. You've been working in this area on this topic for close to two decades now. A lot has happened in Colombia generally over that time period. It's been a very, uh, in some ways, turbulent uh, period, but also a time when there's been a lot of progress on many fronts. Stepping back and, and taking a long view, what are the most significant changes that you've seen, positive or negative, but, but changes in the corruption situation or the fight against corruption since the time you first became involved in this movement as a university student and now from where you sit as the Executive Director of Transparency International Colombia?
0: Very good question. I think that's something we've been trying to answer since we achieve for 20th anniversary here in, in Transparencia por Colombia. But that's a, a question I pose myself as well, after being so many years in this field. Let me say one thing positive and one thing that it's not that positive. About the positive is that I do see that today in Colombia, we have a stronger checks and balances system. Even though we've had an armed conflicts for so many years, even though we've had very dramatic corruption scandals, high level conflict of interest scandals, I see a vibrant civil society in Colombia. I see a very diverse civil society and people rejecting corruption much more than we used to do. 20 years ago, I see a very brave journalism doing a good job, even though there are very difficult conditions uh, for the work that they do. I see some of these state entities doing their job and not uh, being used uh, as a political tool, but actually looking after protecting the common good, those common values that, that we have. And um, I, I think that part of the reason why we've been overwhelmed by so many corruption scandals in the last two, three years in Colombia and in Latin America is in part because this system of checks and balances has improved somehow. It's not perfect, of course, but has improved somehow over the course of the last two decades. What is not that positive is that corruption has become more complex and... I like to explain this by saying the more light we put into uh, sensitive areas the more pressure we are doing so that corrupt people move away from that light and get more uh, complexity in their operations that makes it difficult to tackle and we see today that as a society and at state level and private sector level, those who are willing to support the anti-corruption agenda, we are not as fast and we are not as good as corrupted um, leaders or people into discovering things and into actually preventing those kind of more complex corruption schemes that, that takes place. So I, I do believe we need to be more aware of uh, the complexity of the problem we are trying to address and we need to uh, strengthen our tools to address those kind of situations. What we see in Colombia, for example, based on the research that we have in Transparencia por Colombia is that the most affected sectors by corruption in Colombia are health, education, and infrastructure. These are the three uh, areas in which we have more public budget than in any other sector. That means that corrupt people go after the big money. But if you look at the conditions of these three sectors, you have a lot of exceptions uh, on how public contracting is is being conducted. You have a very weak uh, public employment. You have very weak uh, control entities over these uh, three sectors. So again, I think today we need much more focus stronger tools and larger uh, uh, support uh, for the anti-corruption agenda. Hopefully, in the next decade, we'll see positive results about these challenges that we are identifying
2: today. Thank you very much. I think that's a great note on which to end our conversation. I really appreciate you taking your time to share your insights with me and with our listeners. Uh, Again, this is Matthew Stevenson. My guest today on Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast has been Andres Hernandez, the executive director of Transparency for Colombia or the Colombia chapter of Transparency International. Andres, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Matthew, and it's been great talking to you.
1: That's it for today. If you want more and if you really want to take a deep dive into the topics that Matthew and Andres discussed, check out the show notes of this episode. There we will provide some links for further information. But we are also interested in your opinion. What do you think, for example, about the link between corruption protests and populism? We highly appreciate your feedback on these issues. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter under at kickbackgap or just write us an email at info at icrnetwork.org. But before we end, I want to take the chance to thank our Patreons for supporting us. You really, really help us moving this project forward, so thanks a lot. Kickback is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpas, and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time.